The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Acts, and today the next passage we come to is Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 28. And it says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sancria he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next, through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Joe. Let's pray together. Lord, you are glorious, you are wonderful, and there is none like you, Lord. And your word, Lord, (laughs) what a blessing that we have words that are actually from God. We don't have to guess about truth. We don't have to guess about the ultimate realities of this universe or about who you are and and your ways, your will, Lord, you've revealed it all to us in the pages of Scripture. What a precious gift that is. I pray, Lord, that the same Spirit that inspired this passage in Acts 18 to be written originally would now take this passage and plant it like a seed within us, Lord, that it might bear fruit in our lives, Lord, that we might be different people, closer to you, conformed to your image as a result of our study of this text. Lord, bless this time 
And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great joys of the Christian life is being used by God to make a significant impact on the people around us and to have a meaningful ministry in their lives. And yet, from what I've observed, many Christians consider themselves to be inadequate for this kind of ministry. Many times they don't think they're gifted enough or knowledgeable enough to engage in any substantial ministry to those around them. In their minds, they're just too ordinary and unequipped to have that kind of ministry to others. Yet as we look through the pages of the Bible, we see a distinct pattern of God using the people you'd least expect to do truly extraordinary things. For example, he uses Moses, a murderer who's currently living in exile to deliver his people from their slavery in Egypt. God uses Gideon, a man who is basically afraid of his own shadow, to gather the Israelites together in order to battle and ultimately defeat an enemy of vastly superior strength. He uses David, a small shepherd boy with no military training, to defeat the mighty soldier Goliath in battle. He uses Peter, a hot-headed and impulsive disciple who publicly denied Jesus to preach the greatest sermon in church history and lead thousands of people to faith in Jesus and to start a thriving church in Jerusalem. He uses Paul, a ruthless persecutor of the church, to function as its greatest missionary and to spread the gospel across the Roman Empire. So all throughout the Bible, we read story after story of God using people who by most human measurements would be considered inadequate and unqualified to do incredible things for the sake of his kingdom and glory. And dear friends, that means God can use us as well. In fact, he does it all the time. And the main passage of Scripture we'll be looking at this morning from Acts 18 is a perfect example of that. In verses 18 through 23, we read about the conclusion of Paul's ministry in Corinth and then of his trip back to Antioch and eventually the beginning of his third missionary journey going through the regions of Galatia and Phrygia. We then come to the final portion of the chapter and read about a man named Apollos. Look at verses 24 and 25. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So Apollos is quite impressive in many ways. Right? First of all, we read here that he's from the city of Alexandria which was a leading intellectual center in the Roman Empire and home to a world-renowned library. Also, it says that he was an eloquent man. It's possible that he had received training as a professional orator 
or that he simply possessed a lot of charisma as a part of his natural temperament. Either way, he was a very skilled and gifted speaker. And even more importantly than that, it also says that he was competent in the Scriptures. Other translations say that he was mighty in the Scriptures. I I really like that, mighty in the Scriptures. He, He wasn't a beginner or a novice when it came to the Old Testament Scriptures, but rather had a thorough knowledge of them. We then learn that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, which simply means that he was familiar with the ways of God as revealed in the Old Testament law. And then on top of all of this eloquence and learning, it says that Apollos was also fervent in spirit. He was passionate and zealous for the things of God. So as you can see here, the picture of Apollos that emerges from these verses is a very impressive one. This is a man who's highly gifted, highly knowledgeable, and highly motivated. In today's world, he would probably be a a very sought-after conference speaker. Like if there was an ancient Jewish version of the, the Together for the Gospel conference that a lot of us from this church just went to this past week, I'm sure that Apollos would be one of the keynote speakers. This guy has like A-list conference speaker written all over him. And yet, his knowledge of the gospel particularly was incomplete. Notice how in the beginning of verse 24, he's referred to not as a Christian or a brother or a believer, but rather as a Jew. And it's true that as verse 25 states, he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus as far as he knew them, but he didn't know them very well. Uh, The last part of the verse states that he only knew the baptism of John. John the Baptist's baptism was, of course, only preparatory for the coming of Jesus. So that means Apollos probably didn't understand the full significance of Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus' resurrection, or the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. It's possible that Apollos hadn't even heard of these things. And so it's probably best for us to view Apollos as a redeemed Old Testament saint who was walking with God and embracing as much of the truth about Jesus as he had access to. Yet the problem was that there were some pretty big pieces missing. His understanding of the gospel was indeed accurate as far as it went, but incomplete. He needed someone to fill him in on the rest of the story. And that's exactly what Priscilla and Aquila do. Look at verses 26 through 28. Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now, as we think about the way in which Priscilla and Aquila ministered to Apollos, consider the dynamic of that ministry. Remember that Apollos was the ancient equivalent 
of an A-list conference speaker, right? He was incredibly eloquent and gifted and knowledgeable. And yet, God used a couple of tent makers to minister to him. Don't miss that. God used the lowly tent makers, Priscilla and Aquila, to minister to Apollos in a life-changing way. And it's in that that we see the main idea of this passage. That God uses ordinary people in extraordinary ways in ministry to those around them. God uses ordinary people in extraordinary ways in ministry to those around them. Verse 26 states that Priscilla and Aquila took him, Apollos, aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Earlier in this passage, if you remember, it was stated that Apollos taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. But now we read that Priscilla and Aquila explained to him the way of God more accurately. So we've gone from accurately to more accurately. That's the ministry that Priscilla and Aquila had in Apollos' life. And we read in the subsequent verses about the dramatic difference it made in his ministry. So God used these ordinary believers, Priscilla and Aquila, in a truly extraordinary way, as he desires to do with us as well. And I'd like to emphasize this morning that ministering to others in this way isn't just something that we can do. Guys, it's something we're called to do. God calls us to minister to the people around us and and make an impact on their lives. Now, I love the way Paul David Tripp says it in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. He states that God never intended us to simply be the objects of his love. We're also called to be instruments of that love and the lives of others. You know, just consider the fact that if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. God has sent his spirit to actually dwell within you. Now, why do you think he's done that? Well, there are several reasons in Scripture, but chief among them, I believe, is that God has work for you to do that requires the Holy Spirit. The fact that every Christian has the Spirit indicates that God has work for every Christian to do that requires the Spirit. And this is a somewhat simple analogy, but it's kind of like a car, right? A car has wheels because it's designed to go places. Or a pen, right? A pen has ink, because it's designed to write things. Similarly, those of us who are Christians have the Holy Spirit because we're designed and we're meant to do things that require the Spirit. Namely, engage in meaningful spiritual ministry to those around us. Brothers and sisters, this is the way that God has designed the church to function. He wants us as Christians not to to hire these professional people 
to do all the ministry in the church, but rather for the members of the church to minister to one another. This vision for the way churches should function is described in detail in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Paul writes that he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What we just read there is a definitive passage. We might even say the definitive passage in the entire Bible of how the Lord has designed his church to function. Jesus, it says, has given leaders to the church, not so the leaders can do all the ministry themselves, but instead why? So the leaders can equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Paul then talks about this body growing to mature manhood. No longer children who are tossed around by all these these waves of inaccurate teaching, but rather speaking the truth in love to each other. That's the method. Speaking the truth in love to each other so that we grow up into increasing conformity with the head of the body, which is Christ. It's in this way, we're told, that the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, builds itself up in love. Not as built up by the leaders, but builds itself up in love. That's how God's designed the church to operate. And what we see happening back in in verse 26 of our main passage in Acts 18. God calls his people to minister to one another. And as we continue to explore the ministry that we see taking place in Acts 18, I believe there are two aspects of healthy ministry that we can observe in this passage and that I'd like to spend some time talking about. Uh, Those two aspects of healthy ministry are First, a helpful approach, and second, a humble response. A helpful approach and a humble response. First, notice the way in which Priscilla and Aquila approach Apollos. It says that they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They didn't correct him in front of everybody. But instead, pulled him aside and spoke to him in private. It's also very clear that this approach, uh, from this approach, that they weren't simply criticizing Apollos, 
but rather were genuinely trying to help him, right? They, they took the time to really sit down with him and explained to him the way of God more accurately, it says. Also, the next verse describes how they later encouraged him in his subsequent ministry endeavors and also wrote a letter of recommendation for him. And that's the way in which we should always approach each other as well in a loving way, with a genuine desire to help. You know, I'm reminded of Paul's directive in Ephesians 4.29, where he says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Every word that comes out of our mouth should be spoken, not ultimately to tear people down, right, corrupting but rather to build them up. That's what this verse says. We should speak only such as is good for building up with the end result that what we say may give grace to those who hear. Now, of course, that may at times involve humbly and graciously sharing truths with people that are very difficult for them to hear. Yet even as we share those difficult truths with people, our ultimate goal shouldn't be to to tear them down, but instead to build them up. Also, we need to do this thoughtfully as well. Notice that Paul says our words should be good for building up as fits the occasion. We need the Holy Spirit to guide us and give us wisdom so that the things we say to people will fit the occasion and be exactly what they need to hear. And the way I often like to say it is that helpful ministry to others involves saying the right thing at the right time in the right way. Helpful ministry to the people around us involves saying the right thing at the right time in the right way. As Proverbs 25.11 says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Or as one popular paraphrase renders it, the right word at the right time is like a custom-made piece of jewelry. You know, it's like a ring that fits someone's finger perfectly and is the epitome of good craftsmanship. Everything about it is exquisitely beautiful. So before you say anything significant to anybody (laughs) in an effort to minister to them, it might not be a bad idea to pray that the Holy Spirit would guide you and help you to say the right thing at the right time in the right way. That'd be a great prayer. And back in Acts 18, that's what we see happening as Priscilla and Aquila minister to Apollos. However, There's also another side of this. There will be times when your place isn't on the giving end of this kind of ministry, but instead on the receiving end. And when that's the case, you have to be humble. And that brings us to the second aspect of healthy ministry that we see in this passage, which is a humble response. So not only do we see a helpful approach on Priscilla and Aquila's part, we also see a humble response 
on Apollos' part. Because remember that Apollos was a very knowledgeable guy. He had breathed the, the rarefied intellectual air of the great city of Alexandria and had what many would consider to be a masterful knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. And so when these two tent makers approached him and sought to instruct him, it would have been very easy for him to simply write them off as his inferiors. After all, what could they possibly have to teach him? And yet, as we see, that's not at all the attitude Apollos has. Instead, every indication in the text is that he humbly and eagerly allows himself to be instructed by them. And the Bible's filled with instructions for us to have that same posture of humility. I mean, the book of Proverbs alone is overflowing with exhortations related to this. Proverbs 1.5, for example, says that uh, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. Proverbs 15.32 states, whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. And Proverbs 18.2 tells us that a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. And we also find plenty of material uh, about this subject in the New Testament as well. In Luke 14, 11, Jesus warns his listeners, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In Romans 12, 3, Paul writes, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And in James 4, 6, we read that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So throughout the Bible, pride is consistently linked with foolishness and downfall, while humility is consistently linked with wisdom and blessing. And the key aspect of humility is, of course, being teachable and open to correction. Because the reality, guys, is that we all have areas in which we need to grow. And sometimes we can kind of perceive some of our own areas of weakness, but other times we're not even aware that we're lacking in a certain area. And when that's the case, it's usually even more important for someone else to come alongside us and help us see things about ourselves that we haven't been able to see. You know, it's kind of like when you maybe have a piece of food stuck in your teeth, right? Or maybe some sauce or a crumb on your lip. A lot of times you can't see that, right? You need someone else to bring that to your attention. And it's the same way with spiritual things as well. You know, maybe there's something that we're just really not understanding about the Bible. Or maybe there's an aspect of our character that's not in line with biblical teaching. We need others to help us see these things 
that we're not seeing. So the next time someone comes up to you and, and brings something to your attention, hopefully you can receive that and receive it well and give what they say honest consideration. Now, that doesn't mean you always have to agree with their assessment, but it does mean you should at least consider what they're saying and perhaps get a second opinion if you're still not sure what to think. The things we definitely don't want to do would be to respond in an angry, irritated, or offended way. And all of this brings us to a larger principle, a more general principle that we see here in Acts 18, which is that we need the ministry of other believers in our lives. We need that. And that means that we need to be involved in a community of fellow Christians where people like Priscilla and Aquila are able to come alongside us and minister to us in various ways. You know, I'm reminded of the metaphor that Paul frequently uses in his writings to speak of the church. He refers to the church as the body of Christ. As Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 12, this body is made up of individual members that each have a unique purpose and function. And just as is the case with a physical body, these members all are interdependent on each other. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 21 and 22, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. So the idea here is that Christians need each other. Like we are simply not equipped to live the Christian life in isolation from other Christians. And by the way, that's why simply watching uh, a church service online isn't enough, right? Now, online streaming, we do it. And it's a great resource for church members who are sick or traveling or simply not able to attend on that particular Sunday uh, for whatever reason. But just understand that that's not church, right? Watching something on your phone isn't the same as actually being a part of it. Think of the church as a greenhouse for spiritual growth designed by God to create the optimal growing conditions that will allow Christians to thrive. In order to benefit from that, you actually have to be in the greenhouse, not just peering into the window from the outside. So let me encourage you to make actually being here on, on Sunday mornings the priority that it needs to be. We need each other, brothers and sisters. We, just as the parts of a physical body are all interdependent, Christians need to be involved in a community of other Christians and develop meaningful relationships in that community so that we can all minister to each other. And lastly, any discussion of ministry within the church 
would be terribly incomplete if we didn't emphasize the ultimate principle for ministry, which is that biblical ministry to one another begins and ends with the gospel. Biblical ministry to one another begins and ends with the gospel. So if we truly want to help each other, we won't just give each other practical advice for a better life or remind each other of the commands God gives us to do certain things and avoid other things. Now, of course, there's certainly a place for practical advice and reminders of how we ought to conduct ourselves, but everything we say as we seek to minister to one another, even when it comes to the more practical subjects, it all should be absolutely saturated with the gospel. Friends, this is how Christianity is different from every other philosophy of living and method for change. That's out there. And Paul David Tripp puts it well when he writes that God hasn't given us a neat formula to follow. He hasn't given us seven steps to personal and relational perfection. Instead, he has told us to place our hope in the presence and work of Jesus, the Redeemer. Tripp then goes on to say, we must not offer people a system of redemption, a set of insights and principles. We offer people a Redeemer. In his power, we find the hope and help we need to defeat the most powerful enemies. Hope rests in the grace of the Redeemer, the only real means of lasting change. This is what separates Christian believers from our secular culture's psychology. Because it has fundamentally turned its back on the Lord, the world can only offer people some kind of system. It reduces hope to a set of observations, a collection of insights, or steps in a process. Praise God that we have something infinitely better than that. We have a Redeemer who is mighty to save and who also shows us the utmost compassion as he walks with us in the midst of all the struggles and complex issues that we face in our lives. Friends, there is no end to the grace Jesus offers us as we set our gaze on him. And that needs to be the foundation of all of our ministry efforts to one another. That that gospel message of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, and what he offers to all who will turn from their sins and put their trust in him. And very briefly, here's what that kind of ministry looks like, practically speaking. There are three primary ways in which the gospel should saturate our ministry efforts to one another. First, we minister to one another, offering the comfort of the gospel. Even though we consistently fall short of what God calls us to be, we can take comfort in the fact that God still 
loves us perfectly and accepts us completely. He loves us and accepts us just as much on our worst days as he does on our best days. And that's because our standing with God isn't based on our performance, but rather on Jesus. You see, when Jesus came to this earth, he lived a perfectly sinless life. He then died on the cross in our place with all of our sins and failures on his shoulders. He suffered the penalty we deserve. And the result of his sinless life in our place and his sacrificial death in our place is that we get to be right with God. And that involves not just having our sins forgiven, but also being clothed with the very righteousness of Christ. You understand that when God looks at us as as his children, When he looks at us, he sees not all of our sins and failures and shortcomings, but instead sees only the perfect righteousness of his son. That's why we are just as loved and accepted by God on our worst days as we are on our best days. It's because our standing with God rests not on us and our performance, but rather on Jesus and his righteousness. And what a comfort that is. In the midst of our struggles and imperfections. And second, not only do we minister to one another offering the comfort of the gospel, we also minister to one another in light of the power of the gospel. After Jesus died, as we celebrated last week, he did not stay in the tomb, but instead resurrected from the dead. And as a result of his resurrection, we too can share in that cosmic victory over sin and death. There's unrivaled power available to us, flowing out of Christ's resurrection and applied to us by the Holy Spirit that enables us to walk in victory over the sins and struggles that would otherwise rule our lives. We can live victoriously not through our own unaided efforts, but rather through our resurrected Savior who now reigns triumphantly from the throne of heaven. It's he who breaks the hold of sin in our lives and gives us the power through the Holy Spirit to walk in his way. And then third, not only do we minister to one another, offering the comfort of the gospel, and in light of the power of the gospel, we also minister to one another, pointing to the motivation of the gospel. The sheer depth of the love Jesus has demonstrated on the cross and the the sheer magnitude of his grace is what motivates us and propels us to live for him. It's not at all that we're trying to earn his favor through our godliness. Instead, we live for him because we love him. And we love him because he first loved us. 
That's what drives us to pursue a life of godliness and, and seek to serve Jesus faithfully. Our motivation is found in the gospel. So that's what it looks like to minister to one another with the gospel as our foundation. As we seek to minister to the needs of those around us, let's never forget that it's in Jesus that we find real help for every problem and real hope for every situation.